Hello, and welcome to Public Key, the podcast from Chainalysis. This is your host, Ian Andrews. Today's podcast discusses tax policy related to cryptocurrency. An important reminder before we begin, this podcast is for informational purposes only and are not intended to provide legal, tax, financial, or investment advice. Listeners should consult their own advisors before making any of these types of decisions. If you want to make an active crypto trader nervous, there are a few things that work better than reminding them that right now, there's only about two and a half months left until the U.S. tax filing deadline. For most people, a tax return is full of arcane and complex rules that you're not quite sure if you got everything right. But for crypto investors, it's even harder. The rules are being written and rewritten each year. So in this episode, I had to bring on our in-house expert, Roger Brown, who is global head of tax strategy, to help us all understand the tax principles that apply to crypto and how both recreational users and institutional investors are managing the Bitcoin on their balance sheets. Roger and I talk about the latest changes in the U.S. and abroad and speculate on how many people are correctly reporting those big crypto gains or losses they might have suffered in the last year. For more on these topics and all things crypto, you better have started planning your trip to New York for the Chainalysis Links Conference. It's happening April 4th and 5th, and you're going to want to get your ticket today because I've extended the early bird purchase window only until the end of January. So just a few days until ticket prices go up. You can find registration details in the show notes. We're recording in late January, and I don't know about you, but tax season is absolutely on my mind. So I went and found the preeminent crypto digital asset tax expert, at least of my network, Roger Brown. Roger, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Roger, you've been in tax a long time. You're a lawyer by training, worked at some of the big accounting firms. How did you go from that, which I, I will admit is maybe stereotyped as a bit of a conservative profession, into digital assets, which couldn't be more wild? It's a journey. It was a journey, actually, not by intent, because when I began my career 30 years ago, digital assets weren't a thing. The way I've always practiced tax is tax is made relevant to something in the real world. Tax is the body of rules. And you breathe life to tax when you make it relevant to a thing. And for me, for most of my career, it's been financial products, financial services, financial entities. And in that course, in serving big banks, big insurance companies, figuring out derivatives, early in my career, it was, oh, this is interesting. There are certain challenges here. Well, let me go do that. And that's where I started with financial products and tax. Fast forward probably 15, 20 years when fintech became a thing, I started doing fintech and tax. I've always found, particularly when you're a partner somewhere, you need to do the next thing to generate the next line of business, serve your existing clients. So there I was doing fintech and tax. In my practice, crypto grew out of fintech because effectively when Bitcoin burst onto the scene, it was about payments and payments outside of centralized intermediaries. And because crypto was a version of a financial asset, then, well, what is this? How do we treat Bitcoin? What are the rules? Is it a capital asset? Is it money? Can I swap Bitcoin for Ethereum without recognizing capital gain? Can I swap it for Bitcoin cash, etc.? So those kinds of issues, very basic issues, 
that drew upon other tax principles, people would come to me and ask, oh, you do new and interesting things. What do you think? What do you think? And that's when I slowly got into this. And then it was sort of the gateway drug, so to speak. It just took me deeper down into more complicated things. And Web3 became a thing and different consensus mechanisms and et cetera. And, you know, years go by, seven, eight years. And here we are in 2023. That's amazing. So you've lived on the bleeding edge of complex tax issues related to finance basically your whole career. When was the first time that somebody said, hey, Roger, we want to hold Bitcoin as an asset and we're not sure like what the tax treatment should be there. Can you help us figure that out? Or, hey, I've got all these transactions that are crypto related, either as an individual or a business. Like, what's the right treatment? How should I be filing this? Do you remember when you first got that question? I do. And not many people know this because it's a bit of arcana in the tax code. And when you go to uh, law school, you tend not to study this. There's a body of rules in the tax code around currency transactions. And the way the tax code works is that all assets in the world are capital assets, except for a list. One of the exceptions are currency transactions. So if you are in a business and I'm a U.S. taxpayer and my basically my operating currency is dollars, if I do something in euro or yen or pounds, those kinds of currencies are ordinary assets to me. That means if I recognize a gain or loss in dealing with them, there's going to be a ordinary loss as opposed to a capital loss. So in 2014-15, when our clients were dealing with Bitcoin, there's a question of, well, what's the character of any gain or loss? Is it ordinary because it's a currency or is it a capital gain or loss because I'm dealing with a capital asset, I'm not a dealer, I'm not, I didn't make Bitcoin, so therefore I have a capital. So that was the fundamental issue that first arose with Bitcoin. Is it a currency? Because we had to address it from a tax perspective because it was relevant to character. And Currency is kind of like art in a way, uh, the Supreme Court version of art. I know it when I see it, as opposed to other alternative forms of artistic expression. You know, we weighed into that and got different people around the table because no one had heard of Bitcoin. No one knew blockchain at the time, and you had to understand it and explain it. And, you know, we came out with at the time, Bitcoin is not currency. I would actually tell you that now a number of countries are still dealing with that issue. Well, I would say the reason they're dealing with this is because you've had at least two countries declare Bitcoin as legal tender, Central African Republic and El Salvador. The way most countries define foreign currency is that a foreign country thinks it's legal tender. It's, you know, you let other people decide what their currency is. We don't decide that is legal tender. Let me back up just a little bit, Roger, for the audience that doesn't have your expertise. So it's always fascinated me this debate over is crypto a commodity or a security or a currency that seems to continue to rage today. You were making the distinction between, even before we get into digital assets, that a company in the United States treats everything as a capital asset except a defined list, which is generally a list of currencies, I think, if I was following correctly. Who sets that list? And are there things on there besides currency? And then what, is, what does that mean for the company in terms of how they think about profit and loss? So every asset is a capital asset except okay. what's on the list. But that doesn't mean people recognize capital gain or loss. You have to not be a dealer, etc. And then there's okay. other sections that can inform that list. The currency rules are outside that list. And there's special rules. There's about four or five sections of the code that just say, these are the currency transaction rules. 
And this is when you'll have ordinary gain or loss. You also touched on the notion of securities and commodities. The tax law, in certain instances, they'll tell you what can be treated as a commodity. And the general thrust is that they look to the commodities regulator to say what kind of derivatives or instruments are traded on a commodities exchange, and those are commodities. But the tax law itself is not going to tell you what is a commodity. For securities, the tax law generally treats debt instruments as securities. They also have certain derivatives treated as securities in certain code provisions, but there's no overarching definition, the definitional section of what securities are and what's commodities. And importantly, the Howey test that applies for securities purposes for SEC does not apply for tax purposes. It's not a feature that is linked at all. Interesting. Okay. So now, and the phrase capital asset is over-encompassing, it's sort of like a noun. Your microphone, your headphones, your shirt, they're all nouns. But then yep. there's subcategories of clothing, electronics, et cetera, that are all features. And the word capital asset is this overall category like noun. And securities, commodities, and currencies are all these subcategories like shirt, electronics, et cetera. Now, I'm hoping that's responsive to your question because there are many sub-elements. Yeah. I hope I, I hit them. I'm starting to sense why the tax preparation business is such a big industry in the United States. I mean, this is complex stuff. We'll come back to kind of where this is going in the future. But I'm curious if we look outside the United States, like is the situation meaningfully different when it comes to digital assets and, and tax? Has anyone simplified this? You mentioned a couple countries where Bitcoin's now seen as legal tender. I actually just read this week, I think Granada has designated Tron as legal tender. So it seems like there might be some differences there. Can you talk a bit about that? My background is international tax plus for the last number of years, crypto. And because we're a global company, we engage regularly with foreign tax authorities and, and as part of that study, the foreign rules. And in that study, there's many common themes actually between them and certain approaches. All countries will tax crypto income to some degree. The question now is to what degree? Many countries like the United States, like the United Kingdom, like Canada, etc., Australia, it's effectively all crypto-related activity will be taxable. There's differences in what people will treat as capital gains that can be eligible for beneficial rates, but there's generally going to be tax. Then those countries will look at mechanisms to earn crypto, like staking, crypto interest, earning liquidity fees on a decentralized exchange, and they will treat those differently, and those will be taxed differently. You'll then have a body of countries like Germany that won't tax gains on the sale of capital assets um, that are held for more than one year, as long as you're not in a business. But if you're in a business, and that can be somebody like an algo trader, then that one-year capital exemption doesn't apply to you. And then you have to take out there's other income that's not gain, which is basically earning on your crypto, like staking it or things like that, crypto interest. And that's not capital gain. So now you're going to be taxed on that. Then you flip to countries like France and recently Austria, where they don't tax crypto for crypto trades, as long as you're not in a business. So I can swap ETH for Bitcoin, and it's not taxable. They only tax you when you swap crypto for a real-world asset, like a television set or a Tesla, or they'll tax you when you swap it for cash. That's where the issue arose, is Bitcoin currency for their purposes, because El Salvador, Central African Republic, and they've, and by the way, they, they have taken that on in different guidance. I think Australia also issued guidance that say, oh no, despite other countries recognize legal tender, we're not going to treat it as. 
I mean, it sounds like the level of sophistication of the tax rules and the understanding that exists within these authorities around the world has increased pretty steadily. I mean, you were just mentioning changes that have been made just in the last few years around the world. Is that a correct perspective? Tax authorities are very much leaning into the space, particularly they've seen things like our gains report, where we've put out two years now. I would say the U.S., for example, had estimated gains of about $47 billion in 2021. The Bitcoin gains alone in 2020 were $40 billion. If you just extrapolate that based on other currencies and market dominance of Bitcoin, it's probably about seven or eight billion. So they see that. And what is the raison d'etre of tax authorities? But to collect the appropriate amount of tax due from activities. As I said, most countries will tax crypto to some degree. Um, and as a result of that, the tax authorities are just doing their job, their statutory mandate to collect tax on what's due. So that's why they're leaning into it, you know, and understanding it. That probably puts a lot of pressure on all our listeners to make sure they're getting their uh, turns in on time this year and, and done correctly, which doesn't sound like it's going to be easy. I'm curious about what you described in France there with the swapping between assets being a tax-free exchange. Mm -hmm. You were describing Bitcoin to ETH. Does it apply in the same way for Bitcoin to a stable coin like USDC? Could I effectively lock in gains with no risk by trading Bitcoin that effectively realizes the Bitcoin gain and then swapping it for USDC or Tether? I'm not aware that France has taken that issue on itself on. For the purpose of stable coins, most countries treat, even after the Luna debacle, people realize stable coins are not substitutes for fiat currency. You know, they're, they're backed by government debt, they're backed by corporate debt, they're backed by some cash reserves, but it's not a one-for-one -one back. And therefore, because currency is issued by, backed by the full faith and credit, uh, legal tender. Those are three different criteria for what is a currency. Stable coins are n none of those. So in general, countries do not treat stable coins as currency. So therefore, to your question of if I'm in France, could I swap Bitcoin for a stable coin? You know, most countries would allow for their tax-free rollover. They haven't made that exception. And whether France has issued rules to address that, I haven't looked specifically at that, but I've shared with you the general rule. That's fascinating. I think it's maybe worth some specific further exploration. You touched on the realized gains analysis that we've done here at Chainalysis. I mean, these are big numbers, right? We're talking about, I think globally, we had guessed about 35 billion in 2020, 160 billion in 2021. You know, a realized gain to break down that terminology is where people bought at one price, sold at a higher price. We kind of added that all up. It's certainly not a perfect estimate, but I think it's an order of magnitude correct. I would guess for 2022, with asset prices declining, that numbers may be a little bit smaller. But I'm curious, is there any sense or data you've seen about how much tax was paid relative to these crypto gains? Like, is most of this being reported correctly and people are paying taxes on it? Is it going unreported? Is there any sort of regional variation that you're aware of? I will cite some public statistics. In 2015, you know, sort of the beginning of the Bitcoin bull run, the IRS statistics were that one of the largest exchange exchanges had 2 million customers. The IRS statistics were that there were about 900 returns in the United States reflecting crypto. So assuming that that one exchange had all the customers, which is not true, there was less than one half of 1% of Americans reporting taxes on their crypto. And that's just a fact. So ramp up, 
and large exchanges are publishing and they're seeing other reports with millions of Americans investing in crypto and recognizing income and not seeing on the tax return, they're just seeing mass amounts of non-reporting. Governments like the United States have leaned into this. So the IRS has issued different letters to spur reporting. Uh, there's a couple of governments reporting publicly their audit activity. I'll refer to Denmark initially. Denmark, based on their crypto audits, based on statistics on their website, has over a 70% success rate based on who they approach to audit and the amount that, that they're collecting. And they've collected more than 30 million kroners in tax based on who they've engaged with. There's a belief, I would say, amongst many tax authorities that they've only really touched a, a small fraction. The IRS has not published those kinds of statistics. They had published the fact that in 2020, 2.3 million Americans did check the box to say, yes, I have crypto. And I would also say that there's just a natural question that if uh, somewhere between 15 to 20 percent of Americans are, are said to own crypto and there's about 180 million taxpayers so one would expect that there'd be about 25 million people checking the box, yes, I have tax, yes, I've, uh, I've traded in crypto, but there's only 2.3 million that have affirmatively done so. So there's still a belief yeah. that some people are flying beneath the radar or people don't want to wake sleeping dogs because they have prior tax compliance issues and there's still not complete compliance. That number's up quite a bit, though. I mean, you said in 2015, only 900 returns reflected crypto. And by 2020, you had 2.3 million people who were checking a box. That's a pretty dramatic increase in five years in my book. Now, I, I get the point, though, that it's still probably significantly under the total people that have bought and sold a digital asset in the U.S., right? Correct. There's also been a great upswing also with regard to adoption. As crypto became more mainstream, millions more people got into this. And again, you'll see in many statistics out there of 14 to 20% of Americans into crypto. And that seems reliable with regard to that. You see that as a common statistic in other industrialized countries. Is there any country around the world where people are definitely paying their crypto taxes? I haven't heard a tax authority that thinks all the tax that's due has been collected and paid on their tax return. I think certainly in the U.S., we've sort of had chronic underinvestment in the IRS until this recent Infrastructure Act bill, which revitalized the staffing at the U.S. IRS. So I can imagine it's not specifically digital assets. It's kind of broadly a tax gap between tax due and tax reported. I'm curious about that question you mentioned on the form for U.S. filers. Why is the IRS asking that question? What's the purpose behind that? I'm glad you asked that question. I think the real reason is to address the shortcomings in our information re reporting system. As Americans, and this, this is not a global phenomenon, there's third-party information reporting. And let me tell you what that means. There's a self-assessment mechanism. I have to file a tax return and I have to declare what I earned from whatever source derived. If I have a lemonade stand in theory and I earned $10,000, I have to report the $10,000. But then there's this check on this where there's an intermediary involved, your employer sends you a tax form and says, this is what you earn, Roger. And then if you have investment accounts and the investment account is saying, Roger, this is what you earn from my bank, from your broker dealer, et cetera, and you get all that. And you get that, the IRS gets that. And if you don't report that, you get a love letter from the IRS saying the information we have on your earnings is different than what you reported. Please explain. So it's all automated, which makes perfect sense because the IRS doesn't have enough people 
to audit uh, 180 million tax returns with their staffing. So they're running machine analytics to detect where there's underreporting and third-party information reporting. That system broke down with crypto because crypto grew so fast and the way the information reporting rules work is that there's no reference to crypto anywhere. The information reporting rules will refer to reporting trading of securities. Okay, so if you're trading in securities, you got to report. Or if you're trading commodities, you got to report. But crypto generally is neither of those things. Therefore, when people parse the information reporting returns, they said, hi, I'm an exchange. These rules don't apply to me. I'm not going to address how correct that was. But there was a belief that the universe of exchanges didn't need to do reporting. So people just let sleeping dogs lie, didn't go and take the extra step. There's a bunch of crypto tax calculators out there, screw up to help you with that process. Early on, they didn't do well because people just weren't bothering paying taxes. It was a <laughs> nightmare. I'm trading on five exchanges. I got self-custody. How do I track all this stuff? So there's no real way in understand this. So you had a number of these companies come up. There's you know probably two or three dozen of these companies around the world now of helping people to do this. So that's really where it fell down. So in the US, if you've ever bought and sold equities on E-Trade or Schwab, or you, know, you have a Morgan Stanley or Bank of America Merrill Lynch account, usually this time of year, we'll get a letter in the mail. It's a form 1099 reporting dividend income or interest income or a sale gain loss report. Copy goes to you, copy goes to the government. All of that activity is recorded and tracked and generally people pay you know, tax due on any activity. You're saying for crypto exchanges, even though they're playing basically the same function for digital assets that uh, one of those companies I mentioned plays for, for equities, they were not creating those 1099 forms until very recently, right? It was last year the first year that there was a requirement for US regulated exchanges to send out 1099s? Or were they doing that voluntarily? I would say this. Now, I don't want to opine on the strength of the arguments, whether they were or were not doing it. Some exchanges were started reporting 1099Ks, and everybody agrees it's the wrong form. You know, people inferred based on certain public statements around a John Doe summons that the IRS issued to Coinbase, and they basically said, well, Coinbase is doing these, and there only certain people get it. People who trade more than 20000 a year and more than 200 transactions, they would get these 1099s. But it, it is not a form that was at all referenced or used for, meant for investment income. It was a form meant to an Uber driver. That's what Uber would pay you, a 1099K. It is not the right form, and Coinbase stopped issuing those. I'm a Coinbase customer, mm. and I don't get that. The tax code, as I said, is a blend of specific rules and general rules. And the information reporting rules are an example of specific rules, where they reference certain kinds of income subject to these information reporting rules. And because they didn't reference digital assets, many exchanges believe they didn't have to do information reporting. In the future, that will change because legislation came in 2021 that requires brokers, exchanges, to do information reporting. There are regulations now at the White House that will be released soon that will apply to centralized exchanges and certain decentralized exchanges for reporting crypto. I suspect they will also apply to other kinds of intermediaries. And that is going to happen globally around an OECD framework that was just published in Q4 of last year. So it's coming. I know a lot of folks probably listening to this are thinking about either taxes 
on their individual returns or maybe their their business return. What are some of the big challenges you're anticipating in this filing season in in the U.S.? There'll be a lot of challenges, and I think you have to uh, divide the challenges into people into different groups. So there are people who just investors whose portfolios lost income; they didn't sell anything. They'll be okay. Because assuming you don't try to claim a loss on those, don't adjust your taxes. If you didn't do anything, you just had a portfolio diminution, don't do anything. Next is investors who had capital losses because they sold something. And if you had what they call slippery hands uh, amongst the hodlers, then you will have recognized capital losses. And your capital losses can offset other capital gains, but you can't carry them back to get prior taxes that you paid. So you can't claim a refund for 2021 tax in the bull market. You're just sort of stuck. But that's one exception is that some people have traded certain crypto derivatives, but those actually, if you want to get exposure to crypto, they're actually give you favorable treatment because if you trade crypto, and this is basically Bitcoin and ETH, um, and there's one exchange that I know called Ledger X that offers these products. There are tax rules that allow those types of capital losses to be carried back three years. And those are different than traditional. Another challenge is moving past capital losses is that lots of people got into putting their assets to work. They're going to stake them. They're going to lend them out. They're going to earn income on decentralized exchanges as fee income. All of that income from earning fees is ordinary income. So if you have $10,000 of capital losses from trading, but you have $10,000 of ordinary income, capital losses can only offset ordinary income by 3000 So you're still going to have 7000 of ordinary income. You're going to have tax pain in the crypto winter, even though you think, gee, I didn't earn much. You know, If you were paid in crypto or your fee income will be paid in crypto, Yes, you'll have diminished fee income because the value of your income is the fair value of the coin at the time you have access to it, the, if you could have drawn down. So just to make that example a little concrete, so if I was heavy into to Terra Luna, lost my shirt, as everyone did, $10,000 down the drain, that's a $10,000 capital loss because that asset went down, assuming that I sold it. So I, I exited the position when it went to zero or close to the bottom. But then I had a bunch of ETH that I've been staking since that was possible. And I've been earning a nice return on my ETH. So even though the asset itself has gone down, it's the fee income related to staking that's treated as ordinary income. And even if I have $10,000 of income from ETH staking, it can't fully offset by that loss from my Terra Luna collapse. But I do want to say that there are certain concepts where Let's say your ETH staking was locked in a contract where you couldn't access your ETH. You can say that I don't have dominion and control. And because I don't have dominion and control of my staking rewards, I don't have to take it into account now. If I had the ability to withdraw it, I have dominion and control and I have income now. So you still have to inform, you have to draw upon classic tax principles. And the IRS has acknowledged this in the, there's a ruling they put out around the Bitcoin Cash airdrop where Coinbase didn't grant access to Bitcoin Cash at the time of the airdrop in August 2017. They delayed until December 2017. And then what is my income amount based on the fair value of Bitcoin Cash in August or the Bitcoin Cash airdrop? So, so you do have that argument, but your core principle is spot on. You also raised the, the notion of these distressed platforms, and we're still on the topic of pain now for 2022 tax returns. Lots of people had experience with Celsius, FTX, Genesis, and BlockFi, and they can't get their assets out. Who knows what they'll get paid, et cetera. 
And some people may say, well, I want to claim a loss now. And the point probably is you cannot because you don't know what your loss is going to be. Celsius is talking about ramping back up and giving you a Celsius token. FTX publicly has said they may get ramped back up. So will you, you know, get your assets back? BlockFi, what will you get in bankruptcy? How much will they get from the FTS estate? So you'll have all these things where you may have had some kind of financial loss, but is it mature enough? Are all events sufficient enough to establish the loss? Probably not. So again, you'll have another point of loss that you'll have to wait. You also talked about Terra Luna, and in your fact pattern was really interesting. You actually talked about exiting right afterwards, and therefore you have a capital loss. But suppose you the victim of a rug pull or a scam, and you're left with a token that's basically worthless. And gee, what's, what can I do now as a deduction? And the point is, probably you're screwed, pardon my English, because <laughs> the 2017 Tax Act changed what they call miscellaneous itemized deductions, a technical tax term. And in in the short, means that you can't get a deduction for crypto that was stolen from you, worthlessness, these kinds of things because of the change in the tax law. So if you do have that pain and you have a worthless token, you're better off selling it for capital loss some websites now popped up like with basically worthless NFTs. You can send it to them. They'll pay your gas fee for the yep. sale because now you're claiming a capital loss equal to your basis in it. Um, and that's better off than just sending it to a burner address or ripping up the private keys or something like that or your wallet. That's a better treatment. It's also worth reminding people, I think this is true, like you can't do that today and take it on last year's return. You needed to have done it before December 31st, I think. That's right. I'm curious for companies holding crypto, you know, like the the mascot for this had obviously been Michael Saylor and MicroStrategy. It seems like there's been kind of consistently complex treatment that just on the surface of it as a non-tax expert didn't make a lot of sense. And it seemed to be this sort of like mark to current value, but only in one direction. So as the asset prices were going down, they were sort of booking a quarterly loss against the value of the asset. But it, when asset prices started going up again, they weren't able to book a gain against the value of the asset unless they realized it. That just on the surface seems very strange and leads, I think, to companies being wary of holding crypto on their balance sheet because of that treatment. Like anything you can help me understand why that's that way? You're spot on in, in your description of the historic treatment under U.S. GAAP because they were thinking of, well, what is this thing? And it's an intangible asset. So they would apply the accounting treatment for intangible assets, which is impairment-based. So if it goes down in value, you impair, but you don't impair up. IFRS is different because you can compare, you impair down and also can give it a rise up if it subsequently recovers. So in October, the FASB issued the tentative decision to say, no, 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 we realize that's silly. There were so many people, sort of a unanimity in agreement in the practitioners to say, this makes no sense. It's not a long life intangible. People are treating it as a financial asset, put a gold on my balance sheet, you're not going to impair it in this way and not allow me to upright, write it up. You should treat it as this because I'm holding Bitcoin not as goodwill or a patent or something like that. And as a result of that, FASB issued guidance to say, well, you're right. Now we will allow, similar to IFRS, to write down and write back up and treat it as an adjustment to the balance sheet and the equity side and in the future through earnings as well. So 
I think practitioners welcome that so as not to punish people. The guidance is limited to things like Bitcoin and ETH, and it doesn't take on things like NFTs. And I think with the diversity of the use cases, both for business and investment, because now people may say, well, I'm holding this NFT in effect as a business asset that I'm using. And I think then in my business, let's say, for example, I'm staking an asset for purposes of gaining access to certain intellectual property. Now I think it would be interesting to say, can I take an amortization deduction on this because I'm using it in my business? And I think that's separate discussions both for tax and as well as financial accounting because the use case of digital assets is very broad. And the particularly as you get into smart contracts, which do business functions in an automated way, and now they can become part of your business infrastructure. So if they become part of your business infrastructure, you would think, well, what other intangible assets am I using in my business as part of my infrastructure? And I will get to amortize them in ways like I do other business assets. And the fact that it's Web3 versus a software license, why should it be different if two different technological means to get to the same business outcome? I think that's where a lot of the action will be in the coming years. Interesting. Roger, look to the future for us a little bit here. Tax law, probably not the fastest moving area, but you know, as everybody listening here is a participant in the digital asset crypto ecosystem in some way, I'm sure. Like, what should we anticipate coming down the road? It it seems like in some ways tax authorities are getting smarter, as you just described. Companies holding crypto on their balance sheet, that situation's improving. What else should we be looking out here over the next couple of years? I think the biggest issue that will be coming is information reporting around the world. As I said, there are draft regulations at the White House, assuming there's no major hiccups that'll happen in the very near future. The IRS has publicly said they're going to take on staking rewards, classifying digital assets for different parts of the tax code um, will also be. Biden administration also issued something uh, what they call the Green Book, where they proposed sort of a taxpayer neutral rule, allowing active traders to mark the market, uh, which is both taxpayer favorable and government favorable, because now you don't have to deal with some of the really detailed trade, you know, tracing mechanisms of uh, crypto has moved across seven different venues through private wallets, etc. And where did all these go and how do I apply FIFO or LIFO to this? Or I suspect also they'll take on some fundamental issues around basis tracking. Some people apply things like average cost to their crypto that's not permitted in the United States. Some software products allow you to apply average cost, but even though you couldn't do something like that for crypto. For mutual funds, yes, but not for crypto. Some uh, software products allow you to aggregate your bases across all your trading venues and then take the highest one anywhere, even though you didn't sell that crypto. Um, I assume that the government would take objection to that and take that on and uh, require greater diligence. It'll be interesting to see how they deal with software platforms. You know, of the many crypto software platforms out there, the government knows this. They'll give you different answers when you use them. And you know, we had a colleague here in Chainalysis uh, <laughs> whose spouse was a trader. And she said to me, you know, which, which software platform should my spouse use? And I did give an answer, but the, the spouse had used five different software programs and got five different answers. And not by, you know, two or 3% off, but material numbers different. So it's like, well, which one should they use? You know, that's something that the person 
probably you know maybe been on the spectrum to put in all their data because it takes a bit of time to upload all your data into the software platforms and how do they decide which one is the most accurate and something for the taxpayers and the tax administrators to think about because each side wants to get the number you know as accurate as possible I do think that personally most people in the ecosystem want to do their economic activities in the crypto ecosystem and are not motivated by tax savings etc people do take means to minimize their taxes in a fair way. The government don't think would take issue with that. At the end of the year, you want to sell your crypto at a loss? Go ahead, sell it at a loss. And I don't think the government would take issue with that where you have a real sale with that. You know, the tax law allows you to take whatever means that are legal to minimize your taxes. It doesn't anticipate that you can choose the software platform that provides the lowest tax answer <laughs> as a tax savings means. That, that's, that's a bit odd. It sounds like we've got some important improvements to look forward to. Tax authorities are getting smarter. They're training more people. The rules, regulations are getting clearer. We're dealing with some of the more complex situations, but certainly still work to be done. I guess the big takeaway for everybody listening is if you bought and sold crypto last year, don't wait until April 15th in the U.S. to start work on this. It's going to take you a little bit of time to get through preparation. So get to work on it now. Don't procrastinate like I do. That would be my guidance. The deeper I get into crypto, the more I realize why it's taken time for guidance to be written by any tax authority. And the reason is because the crypto ecosystem literally touches upon every part of the Internal Revenue Code. I worked in the IRS National Office for almost a decade, and you realize that they don't want to make a mistake. They don't want to publish guidance that one opens a big loophole that people drive trucks through and at the same time write a rule that just crushes valid economic activity. So they want to be thoughtful in their guidance. And you think about crypto ecosystem that literally touches upon every way someone could literally engage in a commercial transaction or every type of business, not only centralized entities, but also decentralized entities like DAOs and how do you treat them and any classification rules and contributing assets to them and what are these different derivatives. And it makes sense that it takes time. I don't think there's ever going to be a time where the tax law addresses every crypto transaction out there. The problems come in when the fact that you've got smart everyday people to, that are trading crypto and in effect you have to have a detailed understanding of the nuances in the tax code of recognizing that selling my asset for a capital loss is different than holding my worthless asset now that was the victim of effectively the rug pool. And what do I do with this now? And recognizing that my worthlessness is different than my capital loss. How many people have nerdy tax friends that can talk them through that? Probably not a lot. And it's not just the tax side, it's also the IRS side that also has to understand what is rug pull and how's it different than pig butchering and how's that different than theft versus a scam and all these different transactions. Every single way people can transact economically in the real world has a crypto ecosystem counterpart with a technological complexity overlay. So as a result of that, you understand why tax authorities are going slow with this. You understand the challenges. The technological advancement has these benefits. You know, the tax authorities will continue with piecemeal guidance, but information reporting, I think, is the first thing that will come up. And there'll be certain principles that they will outline that provide this guidance, and I think around the world. So it'll be interesting as this develops, as the people really test and really learn the nuances of the tax code um, and all the nooks and crannies that exist inside it. Outstanding. I learned a lot, Roger. I appreciate the time today. Thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thank you. 
Hey there. Thanks for listening to another episode of Public Key. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and our newly launched TikTok and revamped YouTube pages, where we share our favorite moments captured in the podcast and other great content from the Chainalysis team. And if you've got a minute, drop me a tweet. I'm at Ian Andrews DC and tell me what you'd like to see next. We've been releasing excerpts from our crypto crime report over the last month, and in our latest blog, we focus on underground money laundering services. It turns out that these are actually consolidating. The number of addresses receiving illicit funds has shrunk year over year for the last four years, and amazingly, just four addresses accounted for over a billion dollars received in illicit funds in 2022. If you want more details on that information and everything else happening in the world of crypto crime, head to the show notes and you can get the links to the blog I mentioned as well as the rest of the report.